everyone. I'm Lana Close. And I'm Paul Ciperoni, and this is the Engineering History Podcast. Today, we are lucky to have Paul McEnroe on the show. Paul was on the team at IBM that invented and popularized the use of the barcode, a story which he documents in a new book, uh, which we've both read that we're both giant fans of, uh, called The Barcode. Paul, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here. Awesome. Um, cool. Well, why don't we just jump right into it then? Okay. So, Paul, I have a question for you. Um, can you give a brief introduction of who you are and why you wrote the book? Sure. Uh, I uh, am an engineer. Uh, I'm 86 years old, so I'm <laughs> at the end of that career. Uh, I grew up in uh, Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and uh, went to, to school there, uh, had a modest uh, upbringing, and uh, uh, after college, uh, went to work at IBM uh, in California. My, my father had convinced me to go, go west, young man, go west, which he had <laughs> been told by Horace Greeley years ago. And uh, so I, I joined up with IBM, and I did uh, research and uh, engineering research in their laboratory in San Jose, California, for about uh, nine years. And uh, uh, I was going to Stanford. Uh, I actually had done graduate school engineering at Purdue after University of Dayton undergraduate. And then I enrolled at Stanford, and I was going to Stanford the whole nine years I was working at IBM on wow. a part-time basis. And, uh, and then... Uh, I was uh, approached by IBM to start them in a new business. And I can tell you a little story about that if you wish. But anyway, I was approached by them to start them in a new business. And I got to pick the business. And I can tell you how and why that happened, if you'd like. And uh, it happened to be point of sale that I picked. And uh, that's how I got into all of this. Uh, a little different story than the typical uh, you know, startup uh, deal with uh, venture capital and so on. Certainly. Yeah. Do we want to get into those stories now? Yeah, let's let's do it. Okay. Cool. So uh, actually, uh, I was at uh, I was at IBM in my office, and uh, a, a senior executive walks in and says uh, that, "Hey, uh, here's the here's the story." And he says, uh, Frank Carey, who was the CEO and president of IBM at the time, IBM, uh, the biggest company in the world from the point of view of profit and uh, value of stock and so on and so forth, and a uh, very giant company, 23 laboratories around the world and so on and so forth. And uh, so he says that uh, Frank Carey, the, the CEO, had uh, come to the conclusion that uh, the growth opportunities in just plain computers wasn't big enough for IBM to continue their growth curve. They needed to expand their, their the horizons, their vision. And uh, they didn't want to get into different things like oil exploration or something, but they wanted to get into something on the periphery of computers. And uh, so he said, go to Silicon Valley and buy a half a dozen companies and we'll see if one of them will make it. And uh, they said, no, 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 Frank, you don't seem to understand. The companies in Silicon Valley, uh, the value isn't in the patents, it's in the people. 
and uh, they'll all quit the next morning after you buy them because of the culture of IBM. You know, they don't want the white shirts, blue suits, red ties, black wingtip shoes, uh, singing songs in the sales organization in the morning. And uh, so he said, uh, forget that. So then they agreed, well, find somebody in the company, already in the company, who uh, can act like a, uh, a startup and uh, paint a red fence around them, a, an imaginary red line around them that uh, they get to operate differently. They don't have to obey all the red tape and the rules and so on that would sink them trying to start a new company up by building a product the way IBM always does. And uh, I, I think probably since I had been going to Stanford, both the engineering school and the biz school, and I had been doing this research, uh, that led them to, to pick me uh, to be the guy that would try this thing. And so they said, just look around, find out what you can, and make a proposal. I looked at banking. I looked at other things. But I decided to go after point of sale. I had grown up, as I mentioned, in uh, the Midwest, in Dayton, Ohio, in the shadow of National Cash Register. They owned 95% of the cash registers, uh, the registers of sale items uh, at all in, in the world, uh, all around the world. Uh, big old, do you remember those big old, beautiful uh, cast the iron giant, uh, yeah, yeah. Giant, uh, <laughs> machines that had the, lots of keys on it? You push down on a key and mechanically a number popped up 70 or yeah. 80 or 5 yeah. and you know, so on and so forth. But they were very hard to change and uh, integrate uh, uh, into uh, computer type technology. And uh, I had, uh, my research had been focused in scanning. That was my specialty. I had done scanning uh, for different projects, which I did describe a little bit in the book. And, and uh, so those scanning things included uh, scanning big copies of paper for uh, General Motors uh, to, in an application to read engineering drawings, but little things. Oh. Uh, like uh, the CIA uh, of the CIA of the uh, United States government uh, hired us to uh, read uh, little marks on the head of a pin, uh, the size wow. of the head of a pin. You know, uh, so I had this scanning background, and um, it was kind of like James Bond and Q, if you remember what he <laughs> used to do at those times. Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, so there, there. Uh, I had this experience in scanning, and uh, I was aware of uh, lasers because I used those. And uh, new lasers had just come out and were available inexpensively at low power. And uh, while the PC was yet to be a decade, it was still a decade away, uh, I could see that you could put a box on a check stand that would have the things it needed to to interface with the scanner and the printer and do calculations and so on and so forth. And so um, I proposed going after NCR uh, and trying to take that business because, okay, there was one big business. If you could get it, you could get the 95% that they had. And uh, so I put a proposal together for IBM uh, to uh, start uh, in that business and come up with something for item identification. And the supermarket institute and uh, retail stores had both said they wanted something so that they could identify items. Some mark, some type of a thing that you could put on a uh, package of cereal uh, or a can of soup or in retail stores, uh, a, a dresses or shirts or whatever. And uh, so uh, 
we came up with uh, a code. We came up with a barcode that you could put on those items, and uh, you could, uh, you know, uh, get a number. You could put the number in your computer. You could look up the number, and the number would tell you anything you wanted to put in next to it about the item who if it was fashion merchandising who who was the designer what color was it what size was it if it's uh you know olives in the store what size are they and everything and so uh we knew we could do that uh there have been attempts at that before but they had all failed for one reason or another and uh so now the supermarket institute that was 1969 and uh uh, the Supermarket Institute had uh, came came out with a committee, uh, formed a committee to identify and specify uh, exactly what they wanted in 1970, and uh, so we worked with that committee and we worked with the retail organization as well, uh, the National Retail Merchants Association, and we came up with a proposal. Uh, they formally asked in 1970, about a year after we started, uh, for formal uh, propositions from uh, companies. Fourteen companies replied. Uh, seven of them were written up in uh, Business Week uh, in 1973 when the committee made a selection, and fortunately they selected our code and uh, the bars and everything, and it became the universal product code. And uh, and by the way, they were smart enough to put it in, say that if you submitted a code uh, to be selected, you had to put it in the public domain. So yeah. nobody was going to become the Bill Gates of the world at that time. Right. You, you know, of course, Bill hadn't come yet, but that was another 15 years. But anyway, uh, they didn't want to make anybody the richest person in the world. You know, fine to make a profit on products that you sell to supermarkets and retail stores and scanners and so on, but, you know, not any royalties on a code. So uh, anyway, we submitted our code. It was selected. And at that point, which 50 years ago this year, uh, wow. we, we kind of saw this, this is going to go big. And uh, it did. That's amazing. Yeah, one of the uh, when, when you mentioned kind of walling off that one section of IBM, one of the things that came to my mind, especially as like someone, you know, we both live in San Francisco, we're, we're kind of in sort of the, the ethos of the Silicon Valley is like, we're like, the sort of innovation you're talking about, I was surprised by that that could even happen in a company like IBM. And then when you say the red tape, it reminds me a lot of something like Skunk Works, maybe in at like Lockheed yeah. or something, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I actually mentioned the Skunk Works in my book. So uh, when they, uh, I, I submitted a proposal, uh, you know, three hundred thousand the first year, a million the second year, three million the third year, uh, and. Uh, but it was the Skunk Works kind of money, and uh, we were asked to do it, move from San Jose, which is where we were, uh, or I was. Uh, the, there were no other people there, just me. Uh, but uh, when they accepted my proposal, and I gave it to the CEO of IBM, just the same as if he was a venture capitalist, and he accepted yeah. it. But they said, can you please move your operation to North Carolina because we have a plant back there that we just opened a couple years ago, and we need to fill it. It was still pretty empty at the time. And so uh, th that was uh, what we did. So I had to move back to North Carolina, hire a team, and all that kind of thing. And I didn't want to build it in the big fancy building that they had out in the Research Triangle Park. I went right. to the back roads of Raleigh and uh, leased an old brick factory building 
Wow. And uh, it was nice size and so on and so forth. And that's where we did the development. It, uh, I say in the book, it wasn't quite like a Lockheed Skunk Works or an HP garage, but uh, it was uh, not like IBM either. It was, uh, you know, uh, a little uh, a brick building. You know, it was uh, a pretty good sized building, but it was nothing fancy. And it was right in the middle of downtown, right off the freeway. Yeah, those are always kind of my favorite conditions. And Anna, I know yeah. I'm jumping around in the notes here a little bit, but I do think that kind of ties into a later question I kind of had, which was about like, maybe you could talk a little bit more about where that existed on the scale between like, you mentioned the post office was had at one point contracted, but then they ran out of money. And so it seemed like there wasn't, that wasn't a high innovation place. On the other hand, it wasn't exactly Silicon Valley. Maybe you could talk about like sort of, it, it seemed like, you know, reading the book, it seemed like funding was by no means certain uh, th- throughout this process. Yeah, that's right. It, it wasn't. Uh, it, yeah, we, we started uh, at, at IBM and, uh, you know, the innovation in, in IBM at the time was really an engineering thing. It wasn't really CEOs uh, talking about how do we make a innovation? How do we get an innovative atmosphere? That really wasn't a part of the conversation like it is today. Uh, but but uh, what in IBM, uh, they did have... Uh, uh, laboratories uh, as I said I think there were 23 of them around the world at that time and uh, most of those in the United States but uh, they were scattered throughout the entire world and they were all run by engineers and uh, those engineers reported up to division presidents and uh, the uh, the CEOs of the company were typically salespeople or financial people but uh, they uh, did hire successful engineering and engineering managers, and that was very innovative. And they did, you know, they appreciated things like skunk works and all that kind of stuff. So uh, the big laboratories uh, where the products that we were selling, uh, that was one thing. But I was in an advanced system uh, development division, which our goal was to look at, at products that could be were not able to be developed because there was like one thing missing you know like if if, for example you know you could imagine a whole car but you didn't have an engine so you know we would then work on the engine i mean that's just a simple way of saying it but try to define an application where something was missing uh and uh you know uh what we that that that's what we did and and that's why for the post office the application was what was missing was what are you going to put on the envelope okay well what we came up with to put on the envelope was just numbers and then we would scan them and read them uh like in ocr code you know we did a thing uh that you'd probably be interested in i talk about this in the book too we did a deal with a bank it was actually lloyd's bank of london and uh we made a proposal to them to put a magnetic stripe on a credit card. And we did. We put the magnetic stripe on the credit card, and they tested it for six months and tried it out all over England. And uh, the the bottom line was they came back and said they were convinced that nobody would ever replace <laughs> cash money for a credit card with a stripe on it, so they killed the project. Uh, yeah. But but I got the advantage of having learned how to put the a, you know a stripe with a magnetic code on the on a credit card and later yeah. you might be familiar with 
Bay Area Rapid Transit, BART. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. in, in the 19th, early earlier 60s, the, the 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 thing on the credit card thing that was about 1963-4 that we did that 63-64-65, and just about that same time. Uh, we did uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit thing. We put a magnetic stripe, a code, a very similar code to the one we picked later for uh, supermarket and retail on uh, a little machine that we uh, put in uh, next to BART. And you walked in, you put your money in, and you, it gave you a little piece of paper with a magnetic stripe on it. You stuck that in the machine. And you know that worked in Bart for 30 or 40 years. I'm not even sure it's not still there. And yeah. uh, you've ridden Bart lately. I don't know. Do you get a little card with a mag stripe on it? That's the machine we built in the 60s. Uh, That's amazing. Uh, they they definitely still have paper tickets for sure. Yeah. And that machine looks like it could totally could still be the same machine. <laughs> yeah, I bet you it's the same machine we put in. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Um. So I have a question. Um, I noticed uh, in the book, this was really interesting to me for a couple of reasons, but in the book, um, it goes over some political hardships that the barcode product uh, and scanners faced. And I wanted to ask, how was it transitioning from an engineer and manager to basically a lobbyist? It was a shock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we really found out about that sort of early on. But uh, at, at our first store opening, I sent my team up. Uh, I sent my best engineer up. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be sitting by the phone here. Alex uh, was his first name. And uh, call me if there's any problem. Well, call me anyway and tell me how the store opened successfully. And, you know, we even had a duplex system and everything. I mean, it was fail-proof. And he called and he said, sorry, Paul, store couldn't open. <laughs> what? Oh. And, and uh, it turns out, he said, yeah, no, the system works fine. There's a picket line outside, and uh, people can't cross the picket line, so, you know, we've got a social problem here. And so uh, labor unions had raised the issue that the prices were taken off the merchandise, and that was the biggest concern. There were also concerns about laser safety. And, uh, you know, I saw that coming, and uh, the IBM lawyers told me early on, there's no way you can uh, come out with a product with a laser in it and put it in a supermarket, blah, blah, blah. But bottom line was I had to go buy monkeys from Africa, send them to the biggest <laughs> research organization in the country, which was Stanford Research Institute. And they did all kinds of uh, basic research to prove, and it proved that uh, the light from such a low-powered laser would be of no problem. And so we did that. But then this price on the merchandise thing got to be a real issue. 18 states passed laws that... Uh, restricted the use of scanners in supermarkets it said if you had a scanner in your supermarket you had to put the price on every item in the supermarket but only if you had a scanner and of course uh that that took away one of the biggest uh premiums that companies got for not for for buying the scanner in the first place namely you don't have to re-put you know put the price on every item and and change it every time the price changes and so on so um you know that uh, that was a real shock, and I did not see that coming, and it was very hard to deal with. But I did. I traveled around the country as a lobbyist for quite a while. Uh, one of the trips was uh, to Montreal, Quebec, when the Canadian government was uh, coming into a Steinway store up there, and uh, the Canadian government official was interviewing 
uh, customers leaving the test store and uh, prices had been removed and he stopped this little old lady with her cane as she was pushing her cart out of the store and said uh, are you upset ma'am about the fact there are no prices in this store oh no I love it she said <laughs> and uh, he said why and she pulled out her check slip you know and she had this big long check slip and uh, it showed you know Wheaties 47 cents uh, Campbell's soup 27 cents and so on whereas before it just said 27 cents or 37 or 50 or whatever but there was nothing to identify what was that price they just got all the prices listed one right after the other like a hundred numbers up and down the slip and you had no idea which one was which and so she said now with this slip I just walk down the street to the next supermarket and I can compare the prices and I can see that the large Wheaties here cost me so much and on the price at that store they're a different price I can see where it's best to shop so I can do comparison price shopping which I never could do before well that was the last problem we ever heard from the Canadian government they just uh, went away uh, but the US government uh, did uh, have lots of problems but they fizzed out over the course of about a year or two uh, and and they, they just kind of all went away uh, and uh, the, the laser safety issue we dealt with technically uh, proved that it was okay and uh, of course we had all kinds of things to keep the laser light from coming out of the thing anyway uh, but uh, Somebody, one of the one of the senators uh, wanted. He didn't finally do it, but he wanted to propose a law into Congress to outlaw the scanners in the check stand because uh, he said we were using lasers to shoot enemy airplanes down. <laughs> war was on, and uh, he didn't want to put one in the supermarket. So I had to calculate for them. You know, like a 60-watt light bulb uh, yeah. was uh, thousands of times more powerful than the laser <laughs> in the store. And, uh, you know, he, they, they couldn't understand that the one that shoots down an airplane is a million times more powerful. But I loved anyway. that example, the, the light bulbs. It, and we were talking about it, and it reminded me of when you watch those videos of, of Congress talking about, like, Facebook and stuff like that. It's just yeah, like, oh, man. very out of touch. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, we, we do have a funny aside, actually. Yeah, when we were reading through your book, and the reason I found this part so interesting was the um, the Giant and Tyson's Corner. I actually may have, I worked at Giant, and okay. I'm originally from the Tyson's Corner area. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so. so. We think it may have been possibly the same store. We're both Giant alums, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the store I was talking about where the, where the, uh, yeah. Uh, picket line was. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just such an odd thing to us because we we both met after we were giant cashiers. We're both uh, proud users, probably of the same system. Actually, yeah. um, worked great, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you. Uh, but um, but yeah, it was just funny reading that about Tyson's Corner. Very odd coincidence. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, another. Uh, thing I, I kind of wanted to ask you about was you had described a situation where you uh, within IBM there had been a lack of communication on two projects you had been working with Motorola at one point and then you had to halt uh, a joint project with them uh, the way you right. describe it you, you mentioned it could have led to a strain on the relationship but you described they handled it really well uh, obviously they, they deserve a lot of credit for that but I also have to imagine that Due to the way you presented the info and probably the way you treated partners generally, I assume they were predisposed to, to have a good attitude. 
maybe you could say if that assumption is correct, and then maybe talk more generally about how do you treat partners um, if if you know you're working at somewhere like IBM. Yeah, no, that is absolutely correct, and uh, yes, uh, it, it was uh, a, a perfect example, and uh, I, I've run into that so many times. Uh, the way I would like to describe it is uh, the, the the barcode was one thing, but a second thing, which was about as hard, maybe harder than the barcode, coming up with the barcode and the way it was going to work itself, was all the system components that had to work around the barcode. We had to uh, be able to print it. We had printers, we had scanners, we did those ourselves. But then we had a communication system. We had to come up with a whole new communication system. And uh, to send the signal from the scanner back to the back room using uh, real uh, low-speed telephone lines that were already in the store so they didn't have to re, you know, model the whole store just to put scanning in. And uh, then we had to uh, change the whole method of recording because we couldn't record fast enough. Uh, we couldn't wait for the disc to spin around uh, all the time. We had to put contact recording in. That was very, very different. We had to build duplex controllers. All these things uh, were dramatically different. So we couldn't do them. So teams have to pull this all together. And so teams were very important. Well, where do you get teams? You have some ability to do that in your own site, but I had to go to different sites. So now it comes into play about, well, what about all the partners that you've had in the past? So a previous project that we had done, uh, we worked on magnetics, and I have worked closely with the magnetic people out in San Jose. And so they were very helpful. Now I call them back up and guess what? They want to they wanna work with me again. And, uh, but they had no time, but they had transferred the technology so that because they were so busy to England. So that sent me to England. I go to England and now they're wanting to partner with me and that's where they, they built that for us. I came back to San Jose and they built the duplex thing for us. I went, uh, we did all the invention of the scanner but we couldn't manufacture it because we didn't have the right facilities. So we went to Rochester, Minnesota and got the people to do that there. So I think it's extremely important when you're working with partners, you know, treat them all like you'd like to be treated. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, don't worry about uh, extraneous things. Just be honest and straightforward and take the time to explain how you're feeling and why you're feeling and why you're making your decision. And uh, when I went out there to Motorola, you know, I mean, I thought, yeah, they might just line me up and shoot me, you know, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, because it was a, a big deal, but it was innocent. We were innocent. We didn't intend to uh, do anything uh, bad to them, but they had bought uh, property and uh, filled a factory with people to build things that we all of a sudden were now going to be in competition with them on because a different part of our very big company started doing a different thing and we didn't know about it. So I just went into the boardroom there and uh, explained it to them. Uh, and by the way, I, I found out about it one afternoon and the next morning I was on the plane. Uh, you know, so no time passed, yeah. you know, and I was able to tell them that, you know, I mean, we came here. We didn't do 16 analyses of uh, something that took six months and come out and say, yeah, six months ago we learned this. No, we learned it yesterday, last night, and here I am today to tell you that uh, we're sorry and, uh, you know, what can we do to make you whole and so on and so forth. And they they were wonderful about it. And uh, Bob Galvin uh, 
CEO of uh, Motorola was just uh, amazing. And uh, yeah, so uh, teamwork is really key to innovation. Uh, almost anything you do, you need teams, you need people either in your company or outside of it. And you know, you never want to burn your bridges. Uh, you can, you, you, you'd be surprised if you're around long enough. I'm 86 years old now. Uh, if you're around long enough uh, and, and you're in, particularly if you're in the technology business, sooner or later, you're rubbing shoulders with really bright people. You're able to rub, them, rub shoulders with them again. And if they remember something positive from the first experience, uh, they'll probably uh, help you solve your next problem. For sure. Yeah. I think that's really great advice. Um, I have a question about um, something we both noticed throughout the book. There's a list of a lot of uh, technical innovations. Uh, can you give folks a summary of the key ones that made the barcode successful when it was? Sure. Uh, yeah, the, we, we did the, the barcode. Uh, you know, there's several things about it. There was a previous barcode that had been invented by a guy who was on my team, but just as a marketing guy later, and he had this bullseye code. And, you know, a bullseye code, if you have a set of concentric circles, it, it, they're no different whether they're oriented uh, one way or you rotate it 90 degrees, it looks the same. So you don't have to organize, you don't have to line it up when you pull it across the scanner. But we, with bars uh, that are just uh, in one direction, you have to... To, uh, have the scan line uh, cross all the bars. Well, uh, it, it, if you study it, if you have the scan in the form of an X, which we could do because we could shine light off one mirror and right, if you vibrate the mirror, you get the light from a spot going in a line direction. And then if you take that line and move it off another mirror that's perpendicular to it and the other mirror spins the other way or it vibrates the other way, then you'll get... Uh, uh, an X scan uh, but the X scan will only go through all of the bars if the bars are twice or if the bars are higher than they are wide but if you look at the barcode the typical 10 digit barcode with five numbers on the left and five on the right and the bars above them uh, you'll see that it is actually not higher than it is wide it's wider than it is high so it wouldn't work and uh, the supermarket people had very strong feelings about how large it could be. So we couldn't just make it taller. And so what we, uh, one of the engineers, a different one that did most of the stuff, uh, got the idea that, uh, gee, uh, what we could do is we'll read the left half and then separately we'll read the right half. We'll put different encoding on the left half that the computer can tell it's the left and that uh, then on the right and the computer can tell that comes from the right and then it only has to be taller than half its width which is easy and uh, so that was a particular uh, development that uh, solved the problem of the code being too big uh, another one that I think was probably the most critical is that the previous codes and included uh, the the, uh, the bullseye code uh, they measured the width of a bar and compared it with the space next to it. But in the early days of building the system, the codes were not marked by the manufacturer. They had to be printed on a real cheap printer in the store. And uh, this was a real problem because these printers were very inexpensive and a lot of times they had too much ink or not enough ink. If they had too much ink, they made the bars all too fat. And if they didn't have enough ink, they made bars all too skinny. Well, the way those previous codes all worked 
including the bullseye, they measured the width of the bar and compared it to the space between that bar and the next bar. Well, if the bars all get fatter, the space gets narrower and the error compounds and you get a misread. And they got tons and tons of misreads. So what we did is we took the leading edge of a bar to the leading edge of the next bar and the trailing edge of a bar to the trailing edge of the next bar. And if you think about that, if the bars get fatter, all their left edges move left. And so the error compensates. <laughs> it, it, it zeroes out uh, because the bars are all getting too big and the spaces are getting too narrow. But leading edge to leading edge stays about the same. And trailing edge to trailing edge stays about the same. And that's also true in the reverse if the, you don't have enough ink. And so those were two of the kind of things that made the code reliable and reliability was the only reason it succeeded because it took years of using it in the supermarket before we got uh, a, enough of a volume of the items printed with beautiful printing at the factories. Yeah. Um, oh, do you want to go to the next one? Or? I think we kind of talked about this uh, previously about the funding conditions, but I know you had another one about the keyboards. Yes, this was another part of the book. I think we both found really interesting, and it, it was towards the end. Um, you mentioned your troubleshooting of the keyboard failures and a possible mention of having to pull an all-nighter. Um, <laughs> how did you come to the conclusion that you did about the keyboard failures? Yeah, the keyboard. It was uh, keyboard F, as, as it is called. And by the way, you can still buy that keyboard. Uh, wow. Even though it's uh, 50 it's years ago today, they're, oh my gosh. they're prized. You can buy them on eBay. People <laughs> <laughs> still have them because uh, they, uh, they have, I, I had put in the book, I don't recall the number now, millions and millions and millions of keystrokes before failure. Yeah. But uh, I was on vacation, uh, not a vacation, but just uh, overnight with my kids at uh, amusement park in Virginia. And <laughs> I got to see yeah. <laughs> yeah, King's Dominion, yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, I got this phone call that our keyboard was failing uh, badly in product tests. So pack up the kids, head home, uh, go out there, and the next night was the all-nighter. And uh, what we're finding is that uh, we, we have these keyboards. And by the way, this was the keyboard for the first PC, the first IBM PC. That's what it was for. This is, uh, I had in the meantime, after I did the barcode for IBM, gone off to headquarters for four years, then I came back to Raleigh as the lab director. Now I'm the lab director, and so I still have the point of sale stuff, but I've got keyboards as well. So I'm doing keyboards. So anyway, uh, so I'm out there, and we're up all night, and uh, they, they pick it a keyboard on the off the line and take it over to a testing machine and it fails and uh, then they take it to another testing machine and it's okay again so that's the worst kind of failure you know yeah. you can't get it to repeat you can't find out what's wrong and uh, I, I noticed that they were taking it from the line to the test facility on a cart that they rolled across the floor and uh, you know, hard rubber tires and quite a bit of vibration. So I said, wait a minute, let's uh, pick one, let's pick it up and carry it over. So anyway, we picked them up and carried them over and they, they, they worked fine. And if we have one failing, if we picked it up and carried it to another tester, it still failed. But if we put it on a cart and rolled it to the second tester, 
it didn't fail. So there was something magic about the car. <laughs> they were making them fail and making them quit. So we got thinking about that, and we finally figured out that the very minute particles of dust were collecting underneath the bottom of the key and this was a capacitance coupling and so for electrical engineers that understand when a, a one plate gets close to another plate it works unless there's a little particle in there which causes a short circuit and so all we did to fix it really was clean the room uh have the employees wear white coats and uh gloves and so on and so forth clean the environment and uh, we got rid of these little particles of dust and that became the most reliable key keyboard uh, and it had touch feel which was amazing you know because you a touch typist could type 150 yeah. words a minute on it uh, which you can't do with modern keyboards anymore <laughs> and that's why a lot of people still like it so anyway, yeah, so that, that's, that, that's how we figured that out, was just uh, sitting there thinking about, gee, what are we doing different uh, that's causing this thing to fail? And, uh, and, and why are the failures uh, stopping and then failing again? Yeah, before we move on to the next question that you had, Paul, I think the reason that like this part of the book really was fascinating, specifically for me, is because it, it kind of gives a really a general scope of the smallest little thing with in in the lab can really mess up the whole experiment the whole the whole testing and i'm sure as a manufacturing engineer, Paul, you've probably had experience with this as well. Yeah, definitely. It reminds me a lot of the kinds of analyses when you're just like banging your head against the wall like <laughs> what could be going wrong here, you know. But yeah, i could relate to that a lot. One one question, uh, kind of piggybacking off that, actually, is you mentioned your directorship of the Raleigh Lab. Um, you mentioned that you started at around a thousand engineers and then grew to grew to around two thousand, mostly off of hiring new grads. Um, this reminds me a lot of like sort of the SpaceX's and the Teslas. That I'm a mechanical engineer, so a lot of my peers like working there and 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 doing that kind of thing. I guess maybe one question I'd have is like, what was kind of the strategy there with, with hiring new grads and, and maybe there was like a, a mentorship element there? Yeah, well, you know, IBM was growing uh, and uh, we, we were growing a lot. The, the, uh, we, we had a lot of projects uh, we were looking into uh, in communications and so on and we could see that, uh, and we needed a lot of programmers too. Uh, and so uh, when you're, you're taking the size of the lab, and we more than doubled it, like I said, we went, as you said, from 1,000 to well over 2,000. Uh, so, and what we were doing in IBM is we, we didn't have uh, specialized recruiters. We sent our engineers out to the universities to uh, tell them about specific job opportunities we had in a specific lab. So the Raleigh lab, we interviewed our own people. The San Jose lab, they interviewed their own people. And the other 21 labs, they interviewed their own people. So I actually interviewed at approximately 80 universities. Wow. Uh, during the years uh, 1980 to 1983, four, spring of 84. And uh, 80 universities, and so, uh, if engineers had jobs, we would send those engineers out, and they would, of course, meet with uh, an IBM person at the site who was, you know, 
a, a school representative and they or the salespeople for the school and and they they knew the people at the school and they would set everything up and you know they had uh golden tongues and all that kind of thing but the people that went and interviewed them they were real engineers that had real jobs and so they would sit down and interview uh young graduates uh mostly masters, uh, a few bachelor's degrees, but we were hiring uh, a lot of master's degrees. And uh, we interviewed at a lot of the, well, it, if you go to 80 schools, you know, we tried to go to the 80 best schools <laughs> in the country, but that's, that's sure. a lot of universities. And uh, we, were, we were very successful. We tried to pick uh, the best uh, employees. And fortunately, IBM had a very good reputation at that time. And we got uh, a large number, large percentage of acceptances. And uh, it, it was, uh, we, we were hiring people. It was in the day when we were still hiring people for uh, what was thought to be a career. You know, right. not, not not for a couple of years. Yeah, um, and yeah. Uh, we had major programs of education that the, they liked. Uh, if we got a bachelor's, we'd encourage them to go get a master's degree. We had programs uh, for them. We would pay them. Uh, they could apply to go full time, or we would send. Almost all of the labs in IBM are near major universities. And like San Jose and Stanford, yeah. uh, sure. and uh, you know uh, every place where we in, in North Carolina we had Duke, North Carolina State, and uh, the University of North Carolina, uh, all within 20 miles. Uh, so uh, it, it it went very well, and uh, it 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 was it was a little different era than it is today because. You know, Certainly, <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we never fired anybody or laid them off for lack of work. You know, right. I mean, you, you had to steal something to get fired from IBM or <laughs> something else like that. Yeah, it, we didn't want to make a mistake. We we wanted to hire top quality people and and treat them right. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, that that is something we sort of think about in our own careers of just like you know, it does seem like it is different nowadays where. A lot of people I know, like especially here in, in Silicon Valley, you'll stay for like two years and go somewhere else. And then I don't know. It, I guess it's just a different set of rules, but there, there's probably a loss there of some kind. Yeah. Um, but not to dwell on that too much. Um, we kind of wanted to ask you a few other questions. So uh, the forward to the book describes you as a young hotshot engineer at Big Blue. Uh, I think we fancy ourselves young hotshots. Um, so we were hoping to ask you some questions kind of more related to how to have kind of successful careers and, and you know, make it make an impact with, with our engineering uh, sort of lives, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, um, I noticed that there was a consistent theme throughout the book of being sort of in the right place at the right time. Uh, specifically for the barcode. Uh, so my question is, um, was there a sense for you that everything and everyone fit well together by co coincidence or good timing? Or was it just that everyone was very smart and capable and willing to try new technology? I, I think it was more the latter. You know, okay. I yeah. mean, uh, the, the, the people, you know, were good people. I mean, uh, IBM hired top-notch people we always tried to hire the best and uh, most of the people had uh, I would say half of the people had been in IBM longer than I had maybe two-thirds 
I wow. had been there nine years when I started. Wow. I think most of them were there 15 to 20 years. Uh, and uh, <laughs> there, there were quite a few that were older than I. And uh, and then, uh, but but I did pick some young people. I, I, I don't, I, I had the guy that, uh, there was a project in IBM to build a, uh, a point of sale system uh, four or five years before and they hired a bright young guy out of school and he had all these wild ideas and uh, I found out about him and I went up and uh, I begged him to come to Raleigh and he lived he, he was in the Rochester Minnesota plant and uh, fortunately the snow helped me a lot and uh, he moved to Raleigh <laughs> and uh, he was one of the key guys and he was very much younger he was only two or three years out of school but very bright new uh, all the new technologies and so on. So, yeah, uh, you, you have to select uh, the people that you think uh, are prepared to do your job, both mentally and technically. Uh, I mean, with the right attitude as well as with the right knowledge. Uh, and, uh, but uh, IBM was, was full of that. It was, you know, it was very good. Of course, Silicon Valley is full of it too. You know, I mean, right now, I mean, uh, I, I later on did work uh, in Silicon Valley with Trilogy and so on and so forth and uh, geniuses uh, walking around the halls all the time. And yeah. so you just have to get them the right job and the right motivation and uh, the right opportunity. And if you pose the right question, you'll get the right answer. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, was, I was very fortunate that IBM was uh, a field of resource of, uh, of real talent. And uh, you, you just have to let them do their thing, not interfere with it, and uh, keep them working toward the goal that you need. Yeah, so it sounds like Silicon Valley is the place to be for, for young engineers. I think it's a great place to be. There are other places around the country that are getting that way. You know, when I was there, uh, the other place was pretty much uh, Boston. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, that was a real hot place. And uh, I was actually on committees for IBM to help them decide where to put new laboratories. And uh, the places that we looked at were Boulder, Colorado, Tucson, Arizona, uh, nice. you know, and uh, Austin, Texas. And, uh, <laughs> and that's where we put the Motorola thing. And so, you know, uh, actually, uh, Austin and uh, Raleigh uh, Research Triangle Park uh, are uh, hot shot places today, I think. Uh, yeah. New, you know, they're trying to become new Silicon Valleys. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and we personally both love Boulder, Austin. We haven't and been to Tucson, but Boston as well. Yeah. yeah, and Boston as well, yeah. We were actually debating about whether to move to San Francisco or Austin or yeah. Boston. So that's that's good to hear that those are all all technical yeah, yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Um I do have a quick follow-up uh question. How um do we as young engineers market ourselves so that we can meet other capable engineers and develop mentorships? Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, you, you'll run into uh, numerous ones in your business workings. But uh, to expand that, I think it's good to uh, go to conventions uh, and things like that. I mean, I did a lot of that. I hosted conventions for uh, the IEEE. Uh, and... Uh, uh, we went to a lot of conventions and uh, walked around uh, looking at the products that everybody had and 
getting familiar with it. You know, maybe it's not as important today uh, from the point of view of learning about the technology because you got all the social social media and the PCs and the internet to learn about those things uh, in a way that we didn't. You know, if we were going to see the next thing, there was no internet. You, you know, you you went to Westcon, <laughs> which is <laughs> Western, you know, uh, electronics. Uh, uh, show and so on and you learned about a lot of stuff but you met people there and you sat down with them and you talked to them and you had lunch with them and you heard them give a speech and then you went up and you talked to them afterwards and uh, so you get a little bit more out of that in a different sense than you do uh, sitting at your computer and uh, looking up what somebody else uh, put on the internet uh, so but I think if you do more of that kind of stuff uh, involve yourself in engineering societies and uh, communicate with them and get to know other people and uh, I think all that is uh, is very valuable I, uh, I I often said that one of the most important things I studied in school and uh, school may have even been more important in my day than it is now because again of the internet because now you can learn lots of training yourself and so on on the internet that wasn't available you know we had to go in the middle of the night to the library uh, or to the computer lab because you could only get computer time at one in the morning but uh, it's different now but uh, all those things are are are, uh, are so critical yeah, I definitely agree. Getting out there, meeting new people at conventions is a very big part of, uh, from my experience, expanding my engineering horizons. Uh, I do have another question. Um, what aspects of working with a team are most important for young engineers to understand? Well, I think, uh, you know, get to have a good realization of what you can do uh, the best and what you're 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 not the best at, and then you know uh, when you uh, meet up with other people, uh, you know kind of make those judgments uh, without overt questions and so on uh, about them. And uh, gee, this person can do that, and uh, that's a weakness I have. Boy, that that guy would compliment uh, me, or that lady would compliment me very well. And uh, get a, you, you, I think. Uh, internet or schooling or whatever you need to have a really good uh, understanding if you're if you're going to focus on a problem area you need to have a good understanding of the technologies that solve problems in that er area and uh, and then you want to meet other people that have done things in that area and uh, get to know them and uh, as I said the team thing is, is so important it's important not to micromanage it's uh, very important to uh, let people do things their way. I mean, there's four or five ways to do almost everything. And I, I know a guy would come in to me and make a presentation and, you know, some people would say, oh, I would do it this way, you do it that way. No, no. If the guy wants to do it his way or the lady wants to do it their way, you know, let them do it their way. And uh, you may find out something different and uh, they're going to be better with their own idea than they are with your ideas. But uh, let, let them help you, let them compliment you, tell them how important they are to you. Uh, one thing I learned from a guy, uh, uh, an engineering friend of mine who... Uh, He's actually the guy that walked in the room and offered me this proposition in the first place. Uh, his name was Jack Keeler, 
And he was the only engineer that ever rose to the level of management that he did. He became the president of IBM. And uh, one unique thing I can tell you about the guy is whenever I was in a meeting with him or having lunch with him or anything, uh, if you brought up somebody's name and he had worked with that person or uh, as a team member or under him or over him, he would have something super positive to say about that person. He would say, yeah, he's the best at this, or she is fantastic at that, and so on and so forth. And so you just got the feeling that his whole march through the world was recognizing the talents of other people and how you know, it complemented his problems. And that's just the way he was. And uh, like I said, he's the only engineer that ever became the president of IBM. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure he's the only one that ever will be. <laughs> um, I, I have a I have a question that's probably kind of related to sort of relating to people to maybe in that way, um, which is you know especially as young engineers, I think Anna and I are both quite technical, um, and so at least for me when I go and I uh, let's say I'm in a situation like you where I I have some knowledge about the way I think a project should be run or at least I want to give that suggestion. Or, you know, maybe even we should, I need to convince someone that we should continue this project at all. Um, I guess maybe, are, do you have any kind of tips or advice for like how I would communicate that? Or, or just generally how young engineers can recognize that they don't have all the experience, but also um, sort of, uh, you know, convey their viewpoint in a way that's, that's still respectful. Yeah, so I, I think uh, start from your strength. So your strength is going to be your specific technical knowledge of that and the problem. And, you know, people who are going to work with you and or give you money or support to do the thing aren't going to understand the gory detail of it. So the first thing you do is you describe to them uh how it's going to work and uh, how you feel about it. And uh, you give them an honest opinion about the risks. You know, this could go wrong, but uh, then I would solve that by going here. And that would go wrong, but I'd solve it by going there. Uh, explain the thing to senior people and people with money uh, in a way that uh, they can understand it. Uh, get it in non-super technical terms. And... Uh, and and uh, but be uh, let your emotion come out. Let them see what your feelings are about it. That this has a real high chance of success, and I'm really excited about this. But I'm worried about that. Uh, those kind of things, uh, the feeling issue, are very important. And uh, if you can sort of train yourself to talk uh, most effectively to your audience. Uh, I, I often say that uh, one of the best things I ever studied in college and in high school uh, was not engineering, but uh, I was on the debate team uh, at, in high school and in college. And in college, I was a captain of the debate team. We traveled around and debated schools like they play football games, only we did debates. We debated at Dayton, a little school, but we debated Harvard and Virginia and other major schools. And you learn... Uh, by doing that, and by the way, I was the only engineer I ever ran into who was on a debate team. Everybody else yeah. was pre-law or sure. you know, one of those things. And so I learned how to explain 
how a communication system was going to work to an in, to, to a non-engineer who was uh, money bags at IBM, uh, and he, he didn't even understand how a telephone worked, you know, and mm-hmm. and so on. So you had to do this kind of thing, but you you learn to uh, be able to talk to a big group or a small group, uh, and and make your point and go ahead and let your emotions be known and uh, be very complimentary to other people. Uh, you, you know, somebody shows you something that's very impressive, you tell them how impressive you are. I think it's easier for old guys like me to do that <laughs> than, than for young people because, you know, uh, we, we just have age. But uh, as I think I might have said, I'm 86 years old, so it's a long time. But. Uh, that's that, that's what I would do. Uh, talk and, and bring out, uh, make sure that they understand your technical depth in in the topic that you're talking about, and become deep in your topic. If you're if you got to go talk to somebody about it, go study all the up all the sides of it, not just uh, what you want to say, but in case he asks questions that take you off to the left or the right, that you can go to the left and the right and answer. Technical questions are really, uh, you know, uh, very importantly de- dealt with, and uh, but let him know about your emotions and your feeling, and and uh, what kind of people you need to help you, and what kind of team, and what are the various things you need to happen with your program to make it a success. Great, yeah, I, th- I think that really answers it really comprehensively. Yeah. Um, this next question is uh, definitely an important one for me. Um, as someone who's early in their engineering career, I often feel, and I'm sure many other young engineers feel this way as well, um, a bit out of place at work or like a feeling of not belonging, like almost like imposter syndrome, if you will. Um, and there is mention in your book early on in your career at IBM that you had a, a similar feeling of um of imposter syndrome, and I just wanted to ask, how did you overcome this, or did it get better over time? Yeah, you know, uh, actually, that's kind of been a feeling that's been with me my whole life. Uh, <laughs> actually, it, it, yeah, it, it's right. I mean, I uh, a lot of times you, you hear great speakers say they even get nervous when they speak, you know. Uh, they, they, they have trouble, you know, I mean, how, how am I going to say this right? You know, I mean, I've read a lot of Winston Churchill, you know, and, uh, I mean, I, I think he gave some of the best speeches <laughs> and quotes that have ever been given. And, but one of the reasons he did was he was worried about it. And, uh, he right. thought a lot about it, you know, when he said, you know, we'll attack him on the beaches and in the streets. And, uh, you know, he, he wrote that down and again, and again, and again, he, he I don't know how much time he spent figuring out what one sentence would be but okay we're still repeating the sentence now and uh, so I think that it's a very good thing to feel like oh gee you know how am I going to get the right answer to this you got to worry about this you know I mean if I go take a test I don't want to fail I don't I don't even want to get an answer wrong I mean I don't even want to go down to the DMV 
and take a test and get and, and get one of them wrong i you know and so i study too hard but you know it's just the way it is so i kind of think if you have that feeling you might be a real success because you know you <laughs> you'll, you, you, you you really don't want to do thing half baked uh, you 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 want to pay the gory detailed attention and and get it right and uh, so i kind of like that idea and uh, I mean, I still think about that. If I'm going to make a phone call and I think it's kind of important, uh, I'll pull out a pad of paper and uh, make some notes about what I'm going to say. If uh, I'm asked to speak at a, at, 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 at a meeting of any type, a social meeting, a public meeting or anything, uh, I'll sit for a minute and think, okay, I'm going to say A, B, and C. You know, uh, I think that's, uh, that, that's a good thing. Uh, and you know, it, don't think it's unusual that you're, you're, you know, uh, you're, you're wondering about it. I think that the, the more concern you have about doing a good job and uh, doing your homework, it just requires a lot of work. You have to work hard. Uh, most of the inventors of the world have said it's more sweat than, than, than thought. <laughs> Well, not for nothing, but we have tons of notes for this podcast. <laughs> um, one question that uh, I I wanted to ask, this is maybe a little specific to me, so I hope I'm not being too selfish, but I read that you moved for the Barcode Project. You also mentioned Ellen Hancock, another successful IBM alum, actually went long distance from her, her husband for her job. Um serendipitously enough when I was reading this book I'm currently being offered another job that might have to move me away from my family uh, currently and I, I guess maybe uh, it, this is probably the most selfish question of this but I, I, what factors maybe if you were in a similar position which I guess you were what factors did you consider um, for that yeah uh, I, I didn't really want to go to North Carolina uh, you know I mean I I, I I was born and raised in Ohio and I came to California and I loved California I loved San Jose yeah. but yeah. Uh, the opportunity was there and uh, it was a unique opportunity actually uh, I didn't say this in the book or anything but I was uh, asked uh, for other opportunities in business, not even anything to do with engineering, to yeah. uh, become an executive in another company, and wow. <laughs> actually in the real estate world, believe it or not. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, the, the guy who asked me was, uh, you know, one of the most successful real estate people in the Silicon Valley. He sold more property to Silicon Valley companies than anybody in all history. Most all of Santa Clara and half of Palo Alto. Oh my <laughs> and, God. And Sunnyvale. And uh, so I was either going to do that in partnership with him or I was going to go back to Raleigh and do the barcode. So I went to Raleigh and did the barcode. And my thinking was, you know, I spent my whole life up to that point and career and everything studying engineering. And uh, I feel like I need to go, you know, use it uh, yeah. and instead of, uh, you know, uh, getting rich, uh, buying and selling or not buying and selling, but marketing uh, land and all that stuff. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, I think family is very important. I don't know if you have a family yet or not, but, uh, you know, those are real considerations. 
and you know you can look at how permanent it has to be you know i mean okay i figure i'll go back there it'll either be a success or it won't if it won't okay i can recover if it is a success well then all the better and then i'll i'll stay there and i'll be able to go on so uh you know i felt like it was an opportunity for me that uh, wasn't going to come along again you know i mean i have to be at the right place at the right time and if we could pull this off it would be fantastic if we couldn't pull it off okay restart again so uh you know it, it is uh, it is a, a difficult thing to uh, to contemplate uh i had uh, two little kids uh and one on the way at the time and uh, my wife was pretty happy either place, so that wasn't a big problem. So uh, we went ahead with the move. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you have to take uh, your family considerations in, into play as well as your career. And, uh, you know, that's about all I can No, that's <laughs> that's uh, really helpful. Those are a lot of considerations. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of balance. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so in the book, there is, you mentioned the tendency we have as engineers to build versions of things that don't always translate to the real world, um, and don't always help with real world problems. How can we as young engineers avoid this? Well, you just have to think of yourself as the end user. You have to think of, okay, what's this really going to do? What does the customer really need? I mean, there's so many people, uh, the technical people have a tendency to uh, think, oh, this would be fantastic, but uh, who's going to use it and how hard is it to be, how is it, how hard is it going to be to use and how many people are going to really need it. And uh, after look around at technologies and other technologies that are going to happen and by the time you get this out in the market, is there still going to be a need for it or is there something else that's going to come into play that takes away that uh, the need for that thing and uh, so it, it's it's very important to put yourself in the uh, you, you know switch your uh, mind and thinking to the one of the user be a user of your product and uh, you know what do I really what, what, what's important to me you know if you're designing a car you know you want to go get in a car you want to sit in the car you want to drive the car you don't want to read a book that's uh, 100 pages thick on how to work the car and and all that kind of stuff you want to you know adjust the seat and then get back out and so on and so forth and if you're the guy that's designing how all that is going to work you know go use it uh try it you know i mean what we did is uh i built uh a pseudo chuck stand in uh, the laboratory. I even had my kids come in and operate it. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. and, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, you both said you worked at Tyson's Corner, or whatever. Uh, none of the people on my project had ever worked in a supermarket. Wow. So, uh, so we actually brought in supermarket clerks, and we uh, had people who weren't. And they tried to use the system. And they told us, you know, well, hey, I want this, I want that. They, I mean, they knew what they wanted. We didn't know because we'd never stunt, you know, stood there and did that. You know what I mean? So a lot of people will build a product like that, and they never talk to a chuck stand operator. You, you know, I mean, yeah. you you gotta you gotta understand what the the people that are going to use your product want, and they they want ease of use, they want practicality, and they want some function and it, it can't be too expensive so I mean, those things are all 
so important. And uh, I mean, it's 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 really nice uh, on it to see you as a, as an engineer. You know, when I was uh, I went to one of the largest engineering schools in the world, and in the whole graduate school to that giant engineering school, there were only two. Uh, females who were uh, working on uh, their PhD, only two out of, you know, a lot. And uh, at IBM, you know, I mean, in those days, there weren't that many women in, in engineering. Uh, my own personal assistant was a lady. Uh, she was very good. We went to the University of Missouri, and uh, I was really delighted. Uh, Ellen Hancock, you mentioned. I, I went out. Uh, I was sitting, uh, getting an address. Uh, I, I was a consultant at the time for uh, one of the presidents of the company and she was making a presentation and there was an organization that didn't like what she was doing because it was going to kill their project and so they were cross-examining her and she was uh, a young lady this was uh, in the late 1970s and uh, she was managing two people I think in upstate New York in a laboratory in the cold climate and uh, she came down to headquarters and she was up there and these people were cross-examining her six ways from Sunday and uh, I was really impressed and so uh, several months later we opened a new laboratory and uh, I needed to have a person reporting to me in that laboratory and uh, who could really stand up and uh, both understand this kind of stuff she wasn't an engineer she was a math major but she this was software and she really understood that and she had a very good systems mind and so I proposed that and I put this in the book, I, I proposed that I make her the head of testing at that laboratory, and everybody had a heart attack. Wait, hey, first of all, she's a woman. Secondly, you know, she's married, and her husband doesn't work there. Okay, well, I'll find him a job, too. And then, you know, thirdly, uh, she's only a first-level manager, and you want to give her a job as a third, and is soon going to be a fourth-level manager, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, But... Uh, Anyway, my boss was really supportive. He said, if you feel that way, you know, I'm going to be behind you. And so he stuck behind me, and I stuck with my thing, and we got her the job. And, you know, she later, uh, uh, she did that job, did it well, went to work for somebody else, did that well. Then I hired her back again, and when I hired her the second time in Raleigh, she was working for me. I was the lab director. She was running my whole programming operation, which was more than a 1,000 programmers. And uh, she was written up, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal, it could have been New York Times, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, written up as the highest, uh, highest technical uh, woman uh, executive in the United States. Wow. And then, of course, later on, she went on to, you know, become COO at Apple and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, if you know Ellen's history, she, she went lots of places. Yeah. Fairchild yeah. Semiconductor and so on and so forth exodus yes yeah well thank you for bringing that up i've definitely noticed even just in the short time even the four years that we were at school there was more and more female engineers so it's definitely a good a oh good yeah it's, 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 it's a different world today than yeah. 50 years ago yeah, yeah. Mm. so i did have um another question um this is more about uh, kind of like, I guess, kind of the technical side of things, but um, similar to how the barcode was first thought of in 1949, 
um, but it was just sort of ahead of its time. What technology do you see nowadays as being ahead of its time? Ahead of its time? Yeah. You mean with regard to the barcode? Oh, just anything. Well, the thing that's ahead of its time is uh, AI. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, it, because, you know, we don't know how to deal with that and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, the barcode. Yeah, back in the 40s uh, when, uh, you know, uh, th that that code had been invented, but it didn't didn't really work but it was invented and what uh, Joe Woodland who had had invented it came up with at the time was uh, a, a good understanding of how supermarkets could use it if it did work but then it didn't and so they weren't able to involve it the piece of technology that was missing there were several uh, I talked about some of them uh, because the code didn't have the basic uh, capability to be read well even with uh, lasers but without a laser it couldn't be read at all they didn't have a laser back then to start with and they didn't have the rest of the communications things that, that we had but uh, now uh, I think that you know you can put so many circuits on a chip that that's the thing that's really different for example in the barcode we uh, we put uh, the first integrated circuit in IBM went in the barcode point-of-sale terminal and uh, we had that designed and it, we achieved lower cost than you could have individually putting those things in and uh, we had a whopping capability and I had to send engineers off especially to stay for months and learn how to set up an integrated circuit, how to design it at uh, our special laboratories in IBM that only did uh, integrated circuit semiconductors. And uh, so they did that and we achieved a whopping 300 circuits per chip, wow. 300 not 300 million, 300. And uh, that was uh, a breakthrough because it are, yeah. re reduced the interface uh, electronics to the scanner, to the reader, to the printer, uh, to the display, uh, the management of the system and the communication line and the buffering, all that stuff. We put in integrated circuits, 300 circuits per chip. How many circuits per chip are there now? Many, many, many. I mean, multiply it by 10 to the sixth. So yeah. now you can, if you, if you know that you, what you need and you need to replicate it and so on and so forth, you can put anything on a chip in terms of logic function. You know, it's amazing. Uh, and you've you got to think now that it isn't uh, the analysis that you do on something is how fast can you do simple things, which is the whole secret to AI, right? I mean, it, it, you can do trial and error. And you can try a million guesses uh, in a second. And, uh, you know, if you get a million guesses, one of them is probably going to be right. So yeah. maybe you don't even want to, uh, you know, use it the other way. Uh, it, it, it's just, you know, it, it is amazing. So uh, th that's the thing that's, that's, that's really out ahead is the capability of uh, integrated circuits and uh, that leads to the whole thing of AI uh, with the integrated circuits let you make so many computations and so many guesses so early on that you have to think differently about how you solve problems. You have to think very differently about it. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, 
Cool. Well, I think we have one final question, which is probably our most open-ended one, um, which is that when we both when we got to the end of the book, we were reading it together. We were both really moved by the words that your wife had about your life, the challenges and accomplishments you've had. Uh, I guess the most open-ended question we've asked, what advice would you give, especially to young people, on how to live a meaningful life in general? <laughs> well, uh, I knew I should have gone into, uh, you know, uh, ministry or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> then I could answer that question. Um, you, you know, uh, I think that the, the most important thing is to treat everybody else like you'd like them to treat you. Uh, if you do uh, a good job of that and uh, you think about other people, uh, then it, it, it's going to work out very well for you. And it it's probably will lead you to the top because you'll get more people supporting you. And uh, uh, I, I think that uh, people supporting me has been my biggest uh, advantage in life. Uh, the the uh, support that, that I've gotten from all different kinds of people, family members, neighbors, uh, co-workers, uh, everybody. Uh, and uh, most all people in the world, not 100%, of course, uh, really want to help and uh, want, want to do good by you. And those are the people you want to spend your time with and, uh, and get to know. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're in business and they're, they're in your family and they're in your neighborhood and they're everywhere. And uh, I think that's uh, really the most rewarding thing. The most rewarding thing is, is, is talking with people and discussing things with them and uh, uh, getting to share thoughts and thinking and life with them. And uh, I, I think that's probably the best. Thank you. That's amazing. Well, I want to reiterate that Anna and I both found the book extremely meaningful. We want to thank you for writing it and for being so generous with your time towards us. Um, just for folks listening, The Barcode by Paul McEnroe is now available for pre-order, and it will be released September 19th, I believe. You can get That's it right. on Amazon and uh, wherever you get your books. I don't know, Paul, if yeah. you have a preferred place. B- B- Barnes & Noble, too, uh, or Amazon, yeah. yes. Perfect. Awesome. Well, once again, Paul, our sincere thanks for your time and for this book. Um, I think at least I find the, found this extremely yeah. meaningful and, and uh, just a great use of time. So thank you. It was a great read. Well, it was my uh, my pleasure talking to you. I really enjoy it. Bo- enjoy seeing both your smiles. As we oh. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Well, thanks, folks, for listening. Um, and I, I, uh, I guess we'll head out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye.